My name is Mantra Mukim and I'm a Ledbury poetry critic and a poet. Many thanks to our principal funder for this event, Arts Council England. Uh, we are very grateful for your help and support. So our first reader for the evening is Sarah Hymas, who is a poet and a short story writer. Her work has appeared in anthologies and magazines, pamphlets and multimedia exhibits around the UK, including the British Council's New Writing 15, The Rialto, Orbis, Smith's Knoll, and Magma. You can read some of her work on her blog, Echo Soundings, which I highly recommend. Uh, she is also a Hawthornden Fellow. Her first poetry collection, Host, was published by Waterloo Press in 2010, and her short story collection, Closet Collection, was published in 1995. Her second collection, Melt, was shortlisted for the Ledbury, Ledbury Munt Poetry Prize for second collection in 2020, and judges Sandeep Parmar and Naomi Shihab Nai called it, quote, a triumph of imagery interweaving human and sea. These moving poems employ lush, melodious language, rhythmic pacing, a hypnotic sense of attentive presence, unquote. The collection brings together poems that, as Sarah herself has described, uh, are ocean-grown. And they should be read and heard in this very spontaneity and fragility of oceanic history, memory, and time. More recently, her collection, The Hispering, which is uh, going to be available at the table at the end for signing and buying, obviously, uh, is published by Black Sunflower in 2021. It dissembles and reassembles how the world speaks to us and what happens if we listen. This attention to listening, a tactile presence in almost all her work, bears witness to meadows, oceans, folk mythologies, and the whispers of unseen creatures. On that note, please join me in welcoming Sarah Hymus. Thank you, Mantra. And thank you all for coming and for Ledbury Festival for inviting me. And um, I suppose the word that comes to mind is validating the collection calling it, uh, giving it shortlisting for the second collection prize. Um, I don't know if you noticed, there's 10 years between the first and second uh, poetry collections. And uh, yeah, I think that was, I found it really hard to write about the ocean. I knew I wanted to write about the ocean and I found it very hard, 10 years of working out how to do it. Uh, so what I'd like to read for you today is a, collection of poems from Melt and uh, that begin at its starting point. It begins where I live on the northwest coast in Morecambe Bay and the, the, the book itself journeys um, from the bay through various ocean currents and uh, ends at the Arctic um, and obviously where we all know uh, the ice is melting. And so it, it sort of looks at ocean as a, uh, a force of interconnection and connection and binding and, and I'm very interested in how the ocean connects us to ourselves, to others and um, uh, how we can see it as a force for interdependence between all of us really and I don't mean us just as humans but us as all species, minerals and uh, corners of the planet. 
So, um, yeah, the, the beginning uh, part of the book intersperses prose with poetry. So, um, I don't know if that matters, but just so you might understand what you're hearing. So, this, uh, there's a sequence called This Wall, and there'll be bits of that uh, that you'll hear. So, I'll begin with This Wall, Path. Between the lighthouse keeper's cottage and the remains of the abbey, a narrow path courses the sea wall. It traces where the diked field drops as wall, part grass, part stone, to beach. You walk it in wind, rain, sunshine, all three simultaneously or in an eerie vacuum. You exchange greetings with other walkers, pass in silence or pass no one. You walk at high tide, low tide, between tides, collecting driftwood, unidentifiable plastic, kindling. Each you treat as a token you carry back to the keeper's cottage, which is your home now, where it is transformed into fuel, tool or relic. You joke that when you met the man you moved here for, you didn't know if you fell in love with him or where he lived. It isn't a joke, of course, it's a hedging of bets as to how you might inhabit this place, how it inhabits you. To inhabit, to be clothed by a place, wear it as a monk might his robes, as a sponge might the water around it, or to inhabit as routine, being informed by the place in which you and others act. You appreciate the intellectual ease of decimal metrics, but love how the imperial system truly measures your body's traversing of world, your thumb an inch, a foot the length of a foot, a stride a yard. You pace the wall's length, 500 paces, half a mile, dividing land from water. Grit-eyed. I always think of the beach as free. I did not pay to enter. My exchange here is something else. Collecting plastic makes me part of a place apart from me who works to earn the time to be here. Today, though, there is no plastic. It has been blown away, under, into shreds. However wrapped I am, this scattering will chafe a blossoming. Turbines overpowered by wind, immobile, screw the wind, unscrewed by it. I seek out the black shells, their twisted shine. I prefer the stones hosting barnacles. I saw a pineapple, a whole pineapple, and did not take it. Fumble with words. I do not want to talk. I am at the beach. I want to ask questions I cannot answer. There must be drawers full of batteries, jumbled, rechargeable, single-use, never quite throwawayable. Friction works magic to conjure another few minutes, hours from those considered dead. Years later, an ever-ready blue washes up, 
fizzing a remote, close hazard on my tongue. Tide line mosaic, every upright, crane, turbine, ship, body, holds a slither of stillness behind it. I am unsure what I hold. Electric skin invites a spilling. I am not interested in the human, rather the seeness of me. Another this wall holds. The seawall remains under the remit of the environmental agency, although for how much longer is a case for budget allocation and arguments of population density. You regard your walking as a form of monitoring. The suddenness of collapse has its genesis in all the fractures and crannies that, if you consider at all, you see as apertures for new plants. After a storm, two men come to check for holes, assess repair costs, appraising movement in one direction only. Nitrogen, potassium, chalk and other fertilisers seep from fields into the bay, where the swift tides take them out to sea. At low water, a network of rills in the estuary banks reveals the circuitry of the passing of land to sea. At your bend in the river, the salt marsh is wide, a maze of creeks filling and draining their oily water on the tides. Downriver, at the estuary mouth, the shoreline is shorn to thin-necked clods. You're told the marsh is carried every seven years from one side of the bay to the other and wonder how long this regularity will continue. This is up at Loch Erebor on the north coast of Scotland. Whale-boned corset and other relics. How I loved the net flaring around my thighs, blue smocking smoky organza into fingertip deep slots of muscle black nibbling my chest. The power of an unscrutinized body I was the dress, and so now this lock biting my arms as I exult its sting of marbled August, cutting my fingers as they pull through resisting cold. Remote luxury for the nicked and wrapped palms of those girls gutting and rousing herring. Scales tip between us, between profit and water, between herring and cod, ploughed with gunmetal and the slippery tongue of empire, big fish eating little fish, eating our own cellular change. Even the black grid lines of salmon cages moored further up the lock will away on the fluke of cheap nature. To pull on this is to feel already a memory, a fraying seam of two seas colliding. This wall, moss. Moss as marsh, as fixative, as filter, 
punctuates the wall as lime brown bobbles that plug as the cement is dislodged. Walking over it demands attention as to how each foot is placed on this unmade, remade terrain. Your ankles twist easily like pebbles grinding as they bear you. No matter how much you repeat the walk down the slope or across the rocks at the wall's foot, it never becomes effortless. You have to breathe slowly, holding the moment where inhale turns to exhale or exhale to inhale, the point of aspiration. When your neighbour, Ralph, who'd lived here for 93 years, left for a short stay in a nursing home, bright-eyed and shiny-faced like a newborn, he said he would not be coming back. He didn't, but nor has he left, not for you, your knowledge of the estuarine fields, dead man's butts, greasy pike, piper hill, come from him. He isn't your only filter of the place. It accumulates gradually within you, only just slower than the internet out here streams its information. Despite never seeing it, you know where the cottage's well was and its miracle sink pumping briny water into the house because of Bob, the last keeper's son. It's your partner who clocks the arrival of pink feet geese, the golden plover roost flocking godwits. Gav, chimney sweep and purveyor of eels keeps you abreast of fish numbers depending on what's in his net. You gather their knowledge, treating it as substantial as all the other keepsakes brought in on the sea. So this poem is me trying to reconcile myself to hanging washing on a line. I used to hate it. Anyway, writing this poem really helped. And uh, it sort of plays between the washing on a line, pinning the washing on a line, and um, finding an octopus that was caught in a fishing net on the, on the bay. So, because, you know, anyway, you'll, you'll see why I make that connection. Lines of flight. I'm trying to savour pegging each garment to the line rather than pinch this task of my mother, her mother and hers. Gusts of 35 miles an hour slap prehensile legs and arms, me wet and cold. Someone is berating, you have not acquired a maternal patience. Elsewhere, another pins an octopus wide, ringed suckers proud along its splayed marble body. When I catch my heart push against the swimmy blue flesh of an inside wrist, I wonder what stops us from feeling the flush of blood through our body. You ought to consider yourself lucky living in a place where clothes can dry outside year-round. Not all are mine. This trajectory of remote selves yanking at the cord between house and sea wall. 
just their impetus. The octopus is taut, its tentacled brain shock-wired as we try to disentangle blanched tips clasping the strings. In Finland, friends bring in midwinter boards of sheets and towels, drunk dry by continental air. Yes, we have compared washing stories. Here, the fabric's damp will reach the plants eventually, the detergent too. It is not my hand, back, bending back waxy digits, attempting an unwrinkling of the octopus's tents. Light shines through the weave, spinning with every wash, its artillery of microfibers split and charging. The flapping clothes insist all is well, a breezy faith they'll be worn again. Lurching forward, knotted, we leer over the trapped creature, urging it off, out, away. I am tied. Not simply by gravity, whatever it is, is stubborn. Until flipping, plunged red, flushed scarlet, it pulses through water. Brighter for the white, it was less than a second ago. Sleek now, bullet riding zippered straights. A bloody gleam beating in the swill. And the final, this wall, cracks. Higher crevices in the wall will, in early summer, sprout thrift and campion, obscuring mussel shells whose beds have not been farmed due to mercury contamination. Increased acid in seawater weakens their byssus, attaching them to rock, making it easier for birds to tug them free. As many turbines as empty shells stitch the bay, most spinning in the sunlight, but some broken, out of sync. They split the wind into hundreds of streams, but from this distance you feel it in a singular force buffeting you landwards. Hundreds more will be erected, stapling a fence the water will continue to flow through. The incoming current closes the gap between you and them, so there is no space between you, just as the parts of this wall are held together and you to it by whatever renders you to your own ambiguous fortifications. And uh, this final poem I wrote after what was termed the beast from the east when we had the strong winds and the, um, the cold Arctic snap that hit the east coast. And this was up in St Andrews uh, on the coast there. Um, and one morning I went for a walk on the beach. It was March time, as actually it's at Stanzo, and there was just, well, you, you'll hear just an absolute carnage of, of bodies on the beach. It's called Slow Rising. One lobster in a wreckage of brittle stars, urchins, clam husks, crabs, lugworm casings, possibly millions of splayed limbs desiccated in the stretch of miles that will become beach. And we may not save its life 
merely prolong agony, how to know if squeal is emotion or escaping air, another hour, another tide. Perhaps we want to save ourselves. We know we cannot revive the dead. Reverse days, rehydrolysize hearts with photographs of toddlers and terriers playing in the dunes. It is the act of picking it up, of passing it between us and dropping it and blaming the other and trying to ascertain if it is the wind or it teasing its tentacles, then carrying it towards the sea and into a pool where its mandibles twitch a bubble and legs blush a slow rise indigo at the same rate of our own thawing that stays the pain, stalling our rising defences. Those once mottled legs creeping blue with lobster life. These few seconds we bend over the beads of air. Ourselves a slow blush of resistance to the immobility of rack darkening. We don't know if it will live. But our bodies know love as an act of resistance. Thank you very much for listening. Thank you so much, Sarah, for that wonderful reading and for extending such care to listening and attending to the ocean. Uh, this, the second reader for the evening is Jason Ellen Pezon who is an associate professor of aesthetic theory and decolonial thought with joint appointments in the School of English and the School of Languages, Cultures and Society at the University of Leeds. He is also currently the director of the Institute of Colonial and Postcolonial Studies. His writing, poetry, memoir, critical life writing, addresses issues of time, race, class and the environmental conditions underpinning black identity. It has appeared on the BBC, in The Guardian, Granta, The Poetry Review, PN Review, Karkanet's New Poetry's 8, uh, Kalalu, among other places. A 2021 Irish Times and Poetry School Book of the Year, his book, Thinking with Trees, was published in June 2021 by Karkanet and has since garnered international critical acclaim. It also won the poetry category of the 2022 OCM Bocas Prize for Caribbean Literature. Uh, these poems collected in Thinking with Trees attempt to renew the pastoral lyric with their attention to the landscape and to the community. They also update the genre's, the, the, the genre's traditional playlist alongside the usual bird calls and pulsations of spring one hears uh, in these poems, the noise of history. Those very conditions that once made the pastoral, both the poetic mode and the ability to access nature as nature, the refuge of a fortunate few. Uh, his monograph is Thinking with Spirits, Engaging Art and the Political through Amy Césaire, is also currently under contract with OUP. And I've been told only a few um, minutes ago that his second collection, Self-Portrait as Othlo, will also be coming out with Karkanet next year in March. Uh, please join me in welcoming Jason.
Thank you so much, Mantra, for the introduction. And uh, hello, everybody. It's great to be here. It really is, uh, I'm not just saying that, it really is great because Ledbury is one of those festivals that's, you know, a big deal. And we look at every year with longing. And uh, it's so nice, Sarah, to, to be sharing uh, this, you know, to be on the bill with, with you. Um, so thanks. Thanks, everyone. Um, as Mantra said, I, I have a, a book that's coming out next year from Karkinet called Self-Portrait as Othello. And I just thought that I would, um, I would, I would I'd sort of uh, go away from the, the script that I'd planned. I'd read uh, probably a few poems from that one um, before going into Thinking with Trees. So... Um, I, I'm going to start with this one called Self-Portrait as Othello 2. I'll, I'll probably read the poems and then do commentary, if at all, afterwards. <laughs> Self-Portrait as Othello 2. Uh, it has an epigraph from Dion Brandt, A Map to the Door of No Return. The black body is signed as physically and psychically open space, a space not simply owned by those who embody it, but constructed and occupied by other embodiments. Inhabiting it is a domestic, hemispheric, transatlantic, international pastime. There is a playing around in it. You left home for a wandering lust, for pain had driven you to the edge of yourself, and wanting to open the windows of life, you decided to migrate to this country, leaving job behind, becoming student again, to fulfill a lifelong ambition. Traveling was a glory, especially for the poor. A miracle to leave your own, you came to Europe, a way of changing gears, greener pastures, the term that floated about, prestige. But you also came for a different sound, the quaintness of gestures of faces and food, and new tongues are something like trophies, facha, faces, facade. The facade hides things. You like this. Something about the air that you take into your body, tongues, words not understood. What does it mean to be far more fair than black? Education, speech, dress, learning. You have the brawn of an intellectual rude boy, sturdier in brain work than in war. You know hard life, stress, streets and liberty. Talk Shakespeare, Baudelaire, Dante and Nietzsche. Talk sound system. What actually is the language of where you're from? It's that familiarity with rough life, that eye of struggle, that smell of fight, a little hardness in speech, in words, in something, a coming up vibe, Oxford and all that she likes. So invites you to visit at Christmas, three whole days with family and one party to the next, but they think it's going to pass this fascination with a dark-skinned boy, surely she'll come around, find someone of her kind, when she is sated. Self-portrait as Othello. Pardon me, who is Othello? Number one. Raised on the river Gambia, where I learned to row in the Venetian way, Dive with amphibian lungs and fight with hands and sword. Men came looking for us, promising residences on the Canal Grande. 
estates on the mainland, jobs as condottieri. At 21, I was in Venice. At 30, a commander of land armies. Otello, from old high German, Otto, meaning rich and prosperous. Here I am, and I'm striving. Otello da Guinea is my name. I stopped in at many ports where sailors cavorted. I stopped in at Venice, and it became my home. Who is Othello, number two? The decree of 1489 distinguished between white and black slaves for the first time. And in the midst of that, you as a noble black in Venice, Saraceno Nobile, contracted because of your skills in war, a sailor and sea captain, tall and sculptural, your body split the wind boldly. Condottiero, you excel in battles, but not in the city. Self-portrait as Othello three. I was called Boadiben, pieces of scattered wood. I'm dismembered. I look for the different parts of myself in the world's oceans, in the black blood of Europe's monuments, in their sweat stains. In the nervous system of the bridge, Rialto, I sound my cells. I have been here before and heard the lips of the water against the houses, seen the light of the canal. This place is no stranger. The vowels planed from the ocean dissolve on my tongue. A patina-streaked conqueror wants to be my father. I birth you with my seed. My name is in crisis. I am scattered all over your cities, Europe. Okay, so I hope you appreciated just a few poems from the forthcoming book. Um, it has four sections, and one section is actually called Self-Portrait as Othello, which is the title of the book itself. Um, so now for this, uh, Thinking with Trees, which was published last year. Um, well, I'm going to begin with um, a poem called Fallen Beach, which, I, which came to my mind while listening um, to Sarah. And there was something there about process, about watching the slow process of things, or the things that we, we might, you know, to our mind are, are, are slow, you know, transformations and um, things becoming other things. Anyway, I'll just shut up and read the poem. That's the thing, about, you can talk about poems for a, lot, for a long time. Sometimes you just need to read them. Okay, Fallen Beach. The tree has fallen. It will probably take years, tens, hundreds to die. It will probably not die at all. We, by contrast, when air stops animating our bodies, it happens so suddenly. That is it. There seems to be no life after it. At least we cannot see, I mean really see, we cannot see the form that we can take after that moment in the stark reality of cells. When we fall, when air stops animating our bodies or limbs and we die, that is it. I mean, I know we are still there in reality when we go under, 
we too eventually turn into something else and return as spores, as wood, as stone. But the tree, oh, the tree, it keeps on so visibly, so unendingly. Consider this beach. Its life already begins to multiply. Worms pollulate in the hairs of the roots. The bark begins its slow transformation into diamonds. And as for the limbs, news of their death has not even reached them. Each root, each cell, each leaf, each flow of sap running through it starts forming towers, new cities, us. We seep slowly into the cold, unbodying ourselves, but this beach already is reborn, gathering and amassing all this juice and all this joy in the sweet being of the earth. In this mountain of some millions of years to come, when the obsidian or some rock never before formed remembers that I too was here. Naming, one. In the wood I hear the beautiful call of a bird I do not know. I wish I knew the names of birds and could identify them by their songs. It would be so much nicer to say, I heard the warble of a wood pigeon as the red floor of the woodland stretched before me like an avenue through the high rises of beeches and oaks. As I walk on the path and feel the soft cushion, feel my foot pressed down into the flesh of the duff. Because a name is reassurance, a comfort in the flesh to hold these songs in the trees, in the to hold these songs in the, I'll read that again. Because a name is reassurance, a comfort in the flesh to hold these songs in the trees so something could be mine. Warble, shrill, bell, fluting, something nearly right. Two, the urge I feel is to give things names but everything is already named. The urge I feel is to connect with this land, these plants, birds, songs, these trees. To name things would be perverse. Perhaps the place within will always escape the name. In the mind, one leaves, leaves, and leaves. But on stone, earth, and grass, one stays forever. I have a few trees on my tongue, oak, maple, Birch, I have a few birds on my tongue, seagull, mallard, redbreast. I have a few plants on my tongue, rhododendron, English ivy, iris. I have started to see that nothing is itself. Everything turns to something else, like birch bark becoming vestulu. I prefer the sound of my wife's ancestors, the ashes of their throat like the rhododendron barks becoming fighting pythons and me gathering chestnuts for dinner in a stream that dips below ground and re-emerges often, this life I no longer know. Three, when I go walking in Malam, there's still that part of me that didn't want to come, that doesn't want to be in this land of caramel jackets, 
All I can handle is nature on the fingernails. My grandmother planting negro yams, shaping the land. All I can handle is the landscape within me, not scenery spread out on a canvas. Okay, um, how about a short poem for a little change? Uh, I think I'll read two short poems and uh, yeah, sort of uh, the most obvious one to to read okay let's let's try this one um, called daffodils it's called daffodils the subtitle is speculation on future blackness daffodils it's time to write about daffodils again to hear a different sound from the word daffodil Imagine daffodils in the corner of a sound system in Clapham. Can't you? Well, you must try to imagine daffodils in the hands of a black family on a black walk in spring. Um, so, a lot of my I don't know, I'm probably, I'm out of time by now, I don't know, probably, probably a few more minutes. Um, a, a lot of my work is, uh, certainly in this book, um, is about thinking about time and leisure and the nexus, sort of the intersections between time and what we call nature, or at least the ability to be in, you know, to enjoy what we call nature, to sort of have a, uh, an access to that conversation and that vocabulary and, and that sort of thing. And so, um, because one of the things I uh, really, uh, really struck me in, in, in thinking about this whole project was that, you know, time is politicized as well. You know, time is quite political. Um, and, you know, time is, is political, you know, based on class lines. You know, class is one th thing that directs it, but it's also racialized, you know. Time is racialized um, um, because it's based on those lines of race and class and even other things, you know, gender included, that we um, have access or, or not, you know, to the comforts, to, to this thing that we call leisure and the privilege of going for a stroll or a promenade or taking one's time. Anyway, so um, this prose poem is called Leisure, and it's Leisure Part Two, because it's, it's, there's two of them in the book. Uh, I have a lot of um, parts, part ones, and part twos, threes in, in my book. Um, leisure, number two. Our ancestors' bodies were property. We've carried that knowledge with us, you will find it in our saying, Chicken Mary, hark the near. Happy children, be wary. The hawk is always round the corner. People who live in the wake of slavery and plantation, we know we must always be on guard. There's something about containment, self-policing, about not being able to totally let go. Deep down, we know that that ability to occupy your space to look at the world from inside yourself rather than at yourself from the outside 
is also about time. To occupy space is to occupy time. Even as a child, you internalize that, that your life is less deserving of time than the lives of others, that for you, time is never to be wasted, that your life is marked by doing, working. And at a certain point, this word begins to hover above you, around you, you hear it on television, you learn it as a concept. You can't remember when or where you first heard it. Leisure. Only certain people have it. Do they have it because they can name it, the way Westerners name ideas and turn them into money? And now you must unlearn this learning. Learn to carry your body with the confidence of those entitled to time. I think I'll read one last poem, and um, uh, just bear with me while I find the title. Right, right now I'm standing. Right now I'm standing. <laughs> I almost not. <laughs> it's a good, it's a good, it's a good one. Good interlude. Right now I'm standing. <laughs> Beneath what used to be, I imagine, an impressive tree. Split down its bowl, it has sprouted green leaves that will be rustling way into September. At its base, lying athwart the clearing, is the severed part. The color of brown has weathered to near gray and the footfall of walkers has covered the wood with a layer of dust, and yet the part that has fallen among the spikenard and the hungry shrubs surges out of death. The raspberries feed on its breath, and beetles thrive in the slurry middle where the bowl rots. Listen, there is nothing as exhilarating as the feeling of life coming into you. Though people look suspiciously, stand and listen. Do not go anywhere. We have been the workers, just the workers. In the Congo, one man had a land almost 80 times the size of Belgium as his estate. We have been property. When I talk about reclaiming time, I'm just thinking about my body standing in the middle of this woodland and doing nothing. Nothing. Thank you. Thank you, Jason, uh, for that stirring reading. Um, we have now entered the discussion part of this event. And I'm sure all of you have multiple questions. But just to kick off things, I'll ask one of my own. And then if anyone has any questions, just raise your hand. There'll be a roving mic, and um, someone will get to you. Uh, I would love to hear both of you actually speak a little bit more about slowness, since, since like, it seems to be a pertinent theme in at least the poems both of you read today. And, and also like just connecting it to what slowness means for your poetic practice, but what it means to also the landscapes you're talking about and the identities that, that um, you seem to be thematizing. And if there, if there is a kind of nexus between slowness and walking, 
Because, Sarah, in your poem, you're, you're obviously walking beside the beach, beside the coastline, and walking seems to be such an important way of engaging and listening to the ocean. But is, is, it, is, it, does it, is walking also a way of slowing down? And, and it, does it open up the possibility of listening? So yeah, just some of those ideas. I would love to hear more uh, from both of you. I think uh, Jason's last poem, where mm -hmm. the, the standing and uh, the, you, you end it with, I am, and I'm doing nothing, nothing. I mean, that's, mm. that's the slowness, isn't it? Because okay. yeah. I think walk, walk, I mean, walking is obviously, it's slow, it's a, it is a slow form mm -hmm. of passing mm -hmm. through. And what I love about walking is, is that you really feel the terrain that yeah. you're, you're passing through. But standing, I mean, that, and standing alongside trees, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. there's a whole other feeling of, of slowness. And I don't know if you know how fast sap rises through trees, mm -hmm. but it's yeah. like ridiculously fast. Mm -hmm. Sorry, is it us doing something with our mic? So, so there's that sort of what seems still like a tree standing, and yet the the sap is rising up it. Mm -hmm. I don't know the number, but anyway, it's fast. And so I think, yeah, and that's how I, I think standing completely still is, and, and to have is, is something, well, it is political in itself. And, you know, people respond to you quite uh, uncomfortably, as with silence. Mm -hmm. You know, people don't know what you're doing, you're standing. Mm -hmm. And I guess particularly Absolutely. as a, a black man in a forest rather than a white woman, you know, it's, um, so I think there's that. And then there's uh, the, this idea of um, how, how you can sort of receive when you're standing still, I think, and that's slowness, you receive the world on mm -hmm. its terms more than walking through it somehow. Mm -hmm. I don't know whether yeah. that's... Resonates. Yeah, on my, on, my, on my long train journey down from Leeds, I started reading Nick Hayes' um, Book of Trespass. Oh, yeah. And um, it, it has this section where he talks about uh, the deviant and deviance. And because he's talking about transgression, right? Trespass, he's linking that, the etymology, to transgression um, and to, you know, the sort of religious um, context. And um, I just, it just struck me that stopping and standing sometimes, and even perhaps sometimes going on the wrong path, but particularly stopping in the woods or standing, standing up, is a sort of like a deviant practice um, in, in certain places. Because people, you become um, illegible in a sense. Like you become sort of... Um, not fitting with the the normative practice, which is moving through, isn't it? Mm -hmm. Certainly, this is how I I have often experienced it. Um, you, you you become suspicious. You know what what are you doing? Mm -hmm. Like you should keep moving. You know that sort of thing. Um, and so that that sort of came to me because, you know, I am used to certain ways of walking. And I, I, in Leeds, I've been trying to reconnect with certain ways of walking in which you, you, you look, you sort of scan the bush, you know, perhaps because you're looking for herbs and plants that can be medicinal. Probably you just want to sort of enter into a, get acquainted with the flora, the things that are lying there on the ground. 
And so that involves stopping and, you know, you become immobile and you, you just sort of, you know, you just raise suspicions and, you know, people can get um, uncomfortable. I don't know. Um, yes, but <laughs> what you said made me, made me think of that. But I, I was also thinking, Sarah, that walking, and I'd be interested to hear if people have similar experiences, but I was thinking that walking can be a, probably can be a way of slowing down as well, mm -hmm. because we live these hectic lives that, you know, are... I think especially walking without uh, an end goal. Yeah. So walking in circles is a way of slowing down because you're not going from A to B for a certain time, like you were talking about the time. And so that, I think, also is another way of adding another layer of slowing. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Um, yeah. It, it slows the mind down, probably. Yeah. 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 Sometimes I need my brain, my sort of my mind, to be slowed down, and going for a walk in the woods is, I find a way of, of doing that. Um, so I think, you know, the the poetry, this this poetry comes out of slowness mm -hmm. and the ability to be slow, right. which I realize it's it's really a thing that. You know, sometimes we have to fight for it's, it's not. It doesn't yeah. always go without saying. You know, sometimes we have to struggle for that. Mm. Yeah, and I mean, I I am essentially an impatient person, and so the fact that I I write I find quite ironic because it is it just forces you yeah. that slowness because you don't you don't know often how things are going to be for. Well, yeah. years sometimes. Yeah. I mean, you know, I always look to Elizabeth Bishop taking 20 years to write a poem. I just think, yeah. well, that's okay. Yeah. 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 yeah, I mean, so perhaps one connected question, because one of the last poems you read was about leisure and, and mm. how leisure becomes, or rather the denial of leisure in certain contexts. Uh, I was wondering if the connected to slowness and walking uh, and the kind of landscapes that, Sarah, you were talking about, which are disappearing, which are choking up, there are immense histories and catalogues of losses in those landscapes. Is there also possibilities of pleasure and joy in the way that Jason's also talking about in terms of leisure and, and how reinventing the daffodil is perhaps also, like, it, was there an attention to also thinking about moments of pleasure, moments of joy um, in listening to the ocean? Yeah, I mean, I think it's evident in both our works mm -hmm. that we absolutely mm -hmm. believe in seeing joy in the world. I yeah. Mean, yeah. And, and I think that's so important, so important, because how yeah. else can we, you know, how else can we sustain ourselves if we don't mm -hmm. find joy? Mm -hmm. I mean, there's, it's just, you know, it's that it's, it's constant balancing act, I think. Yeah, yeah. And, yeah, I mean, I don't know what you have no, to... No, I, I agree. Definitely agree. <laughs> Joy, uh, pleasure. It's, uh, it's it's part of why we do poetry as well. Yeah, uh -huh. yeah. Uh -huh. It's the it's the sensuality. Uh -huh. It's the pleasure of the senses. And uh, I think that's that's always important. I don't know if it's any more or less important at any given time, but I mean, sure. particularly now, we need to practice joy. <laughs> and I think it's a. Um, it's a creative act in any form. It doesn't mm -hmm. have to be. I mean, you know, there is the, the joy of 
of mm -hmm. a poetic process. But I think creating joy in any form, just by mm -hmm. standing in a wood, going for a walk, whatever, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. seeing the joy in it is a creative act that is sure. ultimately positive. So. Okay. Well, I'll take a pause and see if the audience has any questions. Yeah, there's one right there. Yes. Um, so I've got a question from our online audience. Um, Beth says, thank you. I'd like to ask both poets about solitude. The work seems to contain others, but always on the edges. Is this a conscious choice? Can we share our connection with nature, with other humans too? Uh, you want to take that one first, or you want me to go? <laughs> <laughs> Take a drink of water. Um, so I think, I mean, yeah, you can always share nature with, with other humans. I think for me, the solitude, the solid, solitude, I mean, it's just such an interesting thought. What I love is, is being aware of how there is no solitude. You know, the world is alive mm. with all this other species and creatures and and energies and that and that sometimes I need to be alone from other humans to enable me to recognize that but not always I think you can be with other humans to really engage and other humans can point more species out to you as well I feel like I ought to look at the zoom camera to um to talk directly to Beth but um so I think there's there's layers of solitude aren't there that uh that that enable us, so there's a sort of social solitude that opens us up to, uh, to, the, to the multitude of, of ecological life of which we are part of, and that just feels thrilling to me to be aware of that. And I absolutely don't feel solitude. And you were talking about, mm. in one of your poems, about the, um, the, the sounds of the birds, and when, when you start you know, listening, listening to all the other voices around us. I mean, it's cacophonous sometimes, isn't it? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think your answer is excellent. It's, it's in a sense, I don't need to add anything to it. <laughs> um, I, I think um, what what you make us well, certainly what you lead me to think about is how our conception of personhood, you know, mm. and that the birds are persons, you know, trees have have personhood without putting too far. Probably wouldn't say they are person. Well, they probably are, but they I think they the the, the li all living things have personhood is my is my feeling. So I think um, in as you say when we when we um, lean in to our kinship with living things, with these other beings that we encounter along the way, then we are, we are leading into their person in the sense we're not, we're not alone, is what you're saying, mm. you know? It's, it's, not, it's not necessarily a form of solitude. I mean, I, I get this, this idea of solitude. Um, in my book, I, um, I think I think it would be right to say that I'm mostly with non-human persons. You know, um, there are encounters with with other persons. You know, throughout throughout the book. Um, but what I should say is, 
this book comes out of a particular moment and a particular impetus and a particular urge, which is um, the need to live outside of racialized time, the need to, 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 to um, trans, I don't know if one could say transcend, but transcend racism, the need to, to, to escape the claustrophobia of racism um, is what this book comes out of in large part. I realize that to go into this sort of space um, and to, as I said earlier, to, to kind of lean into the kinship with, with the living world, to feel myself as a part of this, this life, you know, this, this, this vibrancy, this, this sense of, you know, um, exhilarating feeling of life was, I'm conscious of it, was uh, an active way of um, affirming my humanness in a, in a context in which um, there are so many racial aggressions out there, you know, against, against black life, you know. Some of them are on the personal level, but some of them are on the collective level. You know, just, just, just being um, a black man at a time like this, when I was writing this book, and up to now, you know, to, to kind of see the, follow the, the newscape and the mediascape and that visuality of the black body. You know, to put the body out there and to claim a different visuality, a different visibility of the body. To, to feel yourself going through the space um, and, and, and achieve and sort of like be in touch with a different sense of life and humanness. That's what the book comes out of. So, so that was the urgency. Uh, I don't know how I got there, but yeah. I think there's a question. Hi, um, I really enjoyed your book, Jason. I read it over the last few months, and I realised that something in me chimed with it. And as a white female, um, I feel uh, vulnerable in woods, and I've always loved woods. And so, your last um, talking, both of you, about solitude, I yearn for solitude in woods, and I always find I go with other beings, other mm. humans. And I, when I read your book, I felt this enormous affinity and sadness that as a female, I feel vulnerable in woods and I want to feel akin with the natural world and I'm always half looking out for the male. And it's just, I really realized it through reading your poetry. Um, so it's kind of a comment on what you've been talking about. And I wondered, Sarah, if you ever felt like that or, or not. Absolutely. Um, as you were speaking, I was thinking, well, you, that does make you akin with most of the natural world looking out for predators, doesn't it? So there's that. Um, and, yeah, and I think what I, I find both... Uh, that provides a sort of a safety and then also an awkwardness is on a beach 
I am generally the only, I'm the tallest thing. I can, you know, I can see for miles. And we also have, you know, there's other people there, but if, there, if, if, there's, if it's early in the day, there aren't other people. So you, you can see for much further. And I feel much more secure about, about that. And I think, yeah, I think woods, you know, they, they belong to folklore in terms of a place of danger as well, don't they? Yeah. So it's definitely part of that. You can't, you don't have that long horizon. I think uh, I'm going to quickly squeeze one of my own questions, which is to do with the poetic form. And because, Jason, obviously, you explicitly talk about the pastoral in, in mm -hmm. the book. Mm -hmm. uh, and so I was also thinking of like the older beach poem traditions, like Matthew Arnold obviously comes to mind, but also several others, um, poets dealing with water, thinking of water in poems, John Clare, uh, among others. I wonder if there is in both your work, also an attempt to reinvent what nature writing or what tropes of nature writing have meant in for older poets. Is there is there um, is there an advantage and a reward of doing that, of thinking through previous tropes of how nature has been invoked, or how specific ecologies have been uh, conveyed through poetic traditions, pastoral elegy being a few of them. Yeah, so it's one of those broad questions. No, it's your turn to answer first. <laughs> <laughs> we were talking about this before. You've got plenty to say. Well, uh, I don't think I'm going to say what I was saying before. Um, I, you know, keep my answer brief. There is certainly, there is um, um, an active um, attempt and an active gesture of... Um, engaging with the, the, the field of nature writing, mm -hmm. you know, that, that mm -hmm. patch of, of literature, um, and, and nature poetry and eco-poetry, whatever the right term is. Um, yeah, there is in my book, it's, it's, a big, it's a big aspect of it, actually, an, an interrogation of... Um, and it, that interrogation has to do with, um, you know, what's the status of the body? in the poetry? What's the status of the body in the, in the nature poetry? Is the body something that you can just abstract mm -hmm. as something that is, you know, subsidiary? Um, that's almost, you know, almost didn't have to be, be there, you know, in the sense that you're engaging more in a sort of disembodied kind of way. Or is the body front and center? What it is about, what it is to be to be writing this poetry, what is it to be to be talking about nature? Actually, what is nature? You know, Na nature is the body as well. Mm. Nature is us. Mm. You know, um, so it's all of that. Yeah, no, anyway, I said. Yeah. yeah, I think it is just to add to what uh, Jason was saying. I do think the, it is the body that makes us nature, isn't it? I mean, otherwise we would be free-floating consciousness, whatever that mm -hmm. is. Um, uh, so yeah, uh, I I f I feel I, f I feel like it's I think forms are there to be to be responded to. I mean, we are in conversation with everybody who has written, aren't we? Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. and so we are playing with them, off them, and from them. So I absolutely feel that it's. Um, uh, 
yeah, something that is is there to is to, to respond to the form and mm -hmm. and I suppose I am interested in how how that can you know talk looking at and I think that's why it took me ten years to write this book is that looking at something as vast as ocean that sort of moves around the planet stretches changes changes shape and I mean I think it's you know it has got a very um, a strong tradition within modernist poets, you know, thinking of uh, uh, Wallace Stevens mm -hmm. and, um, uh, well, he, yeah, just that, that notion of the sort of intangibility of water that mm -hmm. Stevens looks at. And, uh, um, oh, the Scottish poet, Graham. Um, anyway, it's got a very strong tradition of this sort of uh, intangibility that you're sort of constantly working with. So how, how do you put that into form when water yeah. itself yeah. is such a fluid, fluid yeah. Yeah, body? Absolutely. I think that's a good note to end this event. Please join me in thanking both our readers for tonight. Thank you.